The sermon text for this morning is from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, holding fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So uh, how, how well do you wait? I mean, when you're at a traffic light, when you're anticipating your birthday or Christmas, how, how well do you wait? I mean, are you one of the, the folks that kind of fidget and get all nervous and tap their fingers? And, or do you get frustrated and you get kind of angry that you have to wait for something? How, how do you wait? And, and do you not find, is it not true generally, uh, that, that when you're busy before waiting, it makes the time go faster, it helps out, it's, it's smoother? Well, you know, last week we saw the Apostle Paul say that, uh, that Jesus Christ will return one day, and he gives us this charge uh, to wait active, alert, to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled. In other words, a Christian isn't to just be craning his neck into the sky waiting for this Jesus to return, uh, but we're to function like a colony of heaven, like an outpost of God's glory. Uh, that, that, that Paul's giving us these instructions about how to wait. And so in this text today, which you saw just a, a slew of commands or imperatives, he's really giving us a charge that this is how, this is a picture of how the church is to wait. You know, th this is a kind of a, a portrait as to what a colony of heaven ought to look like to the world. Oh, what an outpost of glory ought to be like. And, and so I just want to boil them all down into four buckets. And one would be, one would be just a, a gratefulness to leadership. Uh, number two would be a mutual care for one another. These are things that we're to be doing. And number three would be to rejoice always, regardless of the circumstances. That's a tough pill to swallow. And, and, then, and then third would be uh, discernment. In other words, discernment in how the Spirit changes us. So let me just go through each one of these with you. First, this um, gratefulness to leadership, uh, esteeming leadership. I've been excited about talking about this one. May take the whole sermon. I don't know if I'll ever get to the, the other three, but... It is there in the text. We want to look at it, right? I mean, this idea, we don't know what the situation was. Perhaps, perhaps Paul was confronting the situation in the Thessalonian church. It was a new church, right? It had young leadership. Uh, those planting the church, Paul and Timothy and Silas, they, they were gone. Uh, so maybe this young leadership was having trouble and maybe doing some things incorrectly, and the people were beginning to push back. And so Paul has a word. Paul is trying to show us that there is an intimate relationship uh, there's an intimate relationship between the membership of the church and the leadership of the church. And we want to understand it well. 
So look with me at 12 and 13. You see him say, we ask you, brothers. So Paul's not coming harsh and heavy-handed. He's saying, we ask you. He's petitioning them. Brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So he's giving instructions to the church about how to relate to the leadership. But notice what he does first. He explains what the leadership does. He says that they work among you. That word for work is like toil. It's like a farmer. It's like busting up the soil. It's a hard work. It's a difficult work. Now, Paul speaks about it being like toil or striving or I worked harder than any of them, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So he's saying that the leadership is to work diligently among the people. Not just among them, but over them. I take that to mean that the leadership has been given responsibility to exercise oversight of the church, looking out over the flock, as it were, teaching, guiding, you know, helping, challenging, and all of this with the purpose of your good end. In other words, if we're waiting for the return of Christ, if we're to live that way, then we want to be prepared for that, and that's the purpose of leadership that God gives to his church to help prepare you, to not exact out of you what they want, but to get you ready really is what it is. And this being over you is including admonishment. You know, admonishment is to challenge, to warn. It's verbal instructions. It's, it's holding up the word of God to you saying, hey, are you living this way? Are, are you living in a way that will be um, a way that prepares you to see him? It, it's a brotherly challenge, if you will, but maybe an, maybe an older brotherly challenge. Uh, so this is the task of leadership. John Calvin, who was a theologian back in the 16th century, said it this way. He said, their work, that is the work of the leadership of the church, he says their work is the edification of the church, the eternal salvation of souls, the restoration of the world, and in some, the kingdom of God in Christ. That's incredibly weighty. I mean, if, if that's true, if that's half true, I mean, it would bend the knee of every leader. I mean, the salvation of souls, the readying of the kingdom of God. And that's why he says, if that's what they've been charged to do, then he says to the members, respect them. Respect them. That, that word means to, um, to give due recognition. It actually literally means to know. Know them, not in a personal way, but know that God has placed them in this position so as to help you so that at the end of your life, you're really thankful that you had the help in the pilgrimage. And, but he says more than respect them, he says esteem them, admire them. Be affectionate. It says in love, be affectionate to them. In other words, you love them because of what they're doing for you. Esteem doesn't mean flattery, you know, where you say something nice to get something nice back. You know, esteem has this idea of we're going we're gonna to listen, we're going to yield, we're going to try to follow your instructions, we're going to work together in this thing. And remember, notice that he says, respect those who are among you. You know, we live in an internet age where we all have our favorite preacher or teacher or blogger, but he's talking about respect those who are among you. In other words, the ones that you know that are working with you that are working in your life, the ones that are, that are given to you that, will, that know you and you know them, that watch over your souls. Respect those who will, particularly respect those who will have to give an account to God for one day on how they took care of you. 
the internet world doesn't know you. They're not watching over you. They're not concerned about you. They're not visiting you. They're just blasting out into the internet. But, but respect those who are among you. Now, I realize that we live in an anti-authoritarian age. We live in a time where uh, there is and there have been many abuses of leadership and authority. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've suffered under it. And I'm sorry for that. I, I think that there have been heavy-handed, distant, selfish leaders. And it kind of causes us to recoil a bit. Uh, but, but you see that Paul has set the table first by saying this is what godly leadership is. This is what we're trying to do. It's a little awkward talking about this, being a leader. Uh, it seems in some ways a little self-serving. I don't want it to be. I don't want to feel that way because I think we're trying to, to do this delicate balance of membership and leadership well. You know, it's often joked and often by my own children that, you know, pastors have the best job in the world. They work one day a week. I can assure you it's a little bit more than that. But I'd like to point out to you that <clears throat> particularly the lay leaders that we have in this church, the elders and the deacons and the ministry heads, they work hard. They work really hard. And they don't get paid for it. And they have full-time jobs. And they have families. You'd be amazed at how many hours they log uh, praying for you engaging various people at various stages of life, interviewing, um, kind of trying to plan, budget, lead, love. It's incredible. The work. Do you know the work that they do? Have you considered it? How has God helped you through their efforts? And have you told them? And, and would they know that you've been helped? So, so, so one way is to just do that, get to know them, Give thanks to them, respect and esteem them. There's some other things we see in the text that members can do in terms of rightly walking out their responsibility before leadership. One would be to keep the peace. <clears throat> you see that at the, end of verse, at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. I, I mean, th there is the responsibility that membership has uh, to not engage in criticism of, of issues you're not fully aware of. Or if you do have criticism of the leadership of the church, which I'm sure will happen at one point in time, just tell us. Don't tell everybody else. Just tell us. We'd love to hear. You know, it's amazing. When you fight for peace, that is a gift to the leadership of the church that is beyond proportion. It is significant. When you are laboring to be at peace, particularly we're going through these crazy days of COVID land, they don't give you a class and seminar on how to do this stuff. You just kind of got to go along and learn as you go. And we've done some things. I think, well, we've probably tripped a couple times along the way. But, but that's where we have to strive together to be at peace. But not just be at peace, try to follow. You know, I think a lot of times we have this understanding of the church that it's kind of an organization that is offering spiritual care and benefits to those who plug in. And we kind of look at it like you plug in to get what you need and you plug out when you don't. It's like a Costco. We get our toilet paper and our paper towels from there, but we go over here for other things. And, and the church isn't that way. The picture in the Scripture is that the church, to be seen, at least by the membership, it's, it's, not, it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. You know, the metaphor in Scripture between pastor and leaders and people would be a sheep and shepherds. Sheep don't do well on their own. They really do need oversight. Now, I know we live in an age, again, where I want to do it my own way, and I don't want to be told what to do. And, and I get it, I have the same inclination in my own soul. But, but the scriptures call us to understand this dynamic relationship 
where the leaders are trying to provide oversight and love in gentleness, serving, but still leading. And, and you are seeing this as a divine necessity for this, really for the sanctification of your own souls. I would say another way to respond to leadership would be to invest your lives, both not just coming to worship, uh, but also in service to one another. You know, it, it's incredible. You can ask yourself this question. If everybody did the same amount that you did in respect to whether giving or serving in church or, or ministering to one another, if everybody did what you did, how well would the church run? It's a good question because it won't convict you if you're really investing. And if you're not, if you're not really engaged in any of the lives of the people around you, you know, probably it might sting just a little bit. And the last thing I would say is just pray for us. We pray for you by name. Every elder meeting, as you know, we pick up two letters of the alphabet and we go through your names and just pray individually for you, your family, your future. And, and we'd ask you to pray for us. And so the first, the first kind of order of waiting, if you will, is that, you know, the membership would love and, and seek to pray for the leadership of the church. Okay, the second thing he tells us to do in waiting is to care for one another. In other words, there's this to be mutual care for one another. Uh, look with me at verse 14. He says, And we urge your brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted." Help the weak and be patient with them all. So Paul's doing something really helpful to us. He's saying, he's saying brothers. Now I want you to know that in Greek that's a collective term. That's brothers and sisters. So that isn't just to men, it's to men and women in the church. And that you are to mutually care for one another. And he really gets specific. They're all commands, and they're commands that you are to do for one another. And the first one is admonish. You're to admonish. Same word used back in verse 12. To admonish is to warn. In other words, he's saying, he's saying to one another, that is not just to me, to you, or the leaders to you, but, but it's for you and one another. Admonish the idol. Now, what does idol mean? I don't think he's criticizing legitimate rest. I think what he's doing is he's saying if someone's just lazy or unruly or undisciplined, the word was used in the first century for those that tried to dodge the draft. It's those people that maybe try to live off the generosity of others. He said, admonish them. Call them to account. Say, change the ways of your life. There is a place for you to do that in one another's life. Now, I know you're thinking right now, but isn't that being judgmental? Is it? I mean, is it, is it wrong or judgmental of you to hold the word of God up to somebody else and to say, brother or sister, I love you, and we've got to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Is that judgmental? Well, it's no more judgmental than a parent seeking to instruct a child away from his wayward tendencies. That word admonish is used often with parents and children. In other words, it's, it's not judgmental for you. If you see a fellow Christian and they begin moving down a path of deconversion, or if they begin to move in a wayward way, for you not to say anything is indifference. It's void of love. You obviously, I don't believe this to be true, but it would seem that you just don't even care, that they wouldn't be prepared. I know that's not true of so many of you. So, so there's a call to admonish one another. But not just admonish one another, look at what he says next. He says to comfort or to encourage the faint-hearted. 
In other words, bring comfort to those who are timid, who are weak, who are easily overwhelmed. Those that just struggle with life, they're just being kind of bowled over by the pressures and stresses of life. We want to comfort them. We want to console them. We want to bring courage to those who are lacking in courage. We want to do it with gentleness. We don't want to come rushing in with all the promises of God, helping them figure out their life. We may want to come in rather gently and quietly and softly. Joseph Bailey is an author. He wrote the last thing we talked about, a book. He said this. He said, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except that I wished he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. You know, this is something we all can do to comfort and encourage those who are struggling. You just can't do that. I don't want you to hear that example and think I can't ever say anything to anyone about the promises of God. We do need to bring those promises to bear on people who are struggling. But there is a gentleness to how we do it. There's a softness. There's a consideration of where they are, how deeply they're struggling. This is what we're to do for one another. But then third, look what he says, to help the weak. I love this. To help literally means to hold or to cleave to. In other words, those who are weak in strength, maybe they're immature in the faith, maybe they're weak in sin, they're giving way to things, uh, that there's a call to, to hold them, to draw near to them. You know, weakness is actually, to be weak is a category in Scripture. You see it in Romans 14. You see it in 1 Corinthians 8. There is a place in this church for the weak. And it's up to the strong to help those who are weak. That's how God brings us together. He's given some strength to help those who are going through times. And by the way, we all are going to occupy these positions at various points in time. And notice that Paul says, be patient with all of them. Patience is a virtue that really displays love. Love is patient, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. To be patient is to be long-suffering. It's to be enduring. It's to be coming along people and not expecting them to be changing immediately and completely. You know, sometimes we want people to change, not because we want their good, uh, but we, don't, we get kind of tired of how they behave. And so we, we seek change in them because we don't want to endure their idiosyncrasies. That's not what he's speaking about here. We want change for their good, which requires patience on our part. But notice there's one more group in 15 that we're supposed to care for. This is the hardest group. This is where I find the, the, kind of the, the road kind of begins to go up a little bit here. In verse 15, he says, you need to care for those uh, that may not like you. In 15, he says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, what he's saying here is, you know, when someone drops a bomb over the wall at you, and they, maybe they've said something about you, or, or they've kind of ignored you, or, or they've, they've kind of um, yeah, distanced themselves from you, they've done something that have harmed you in some way, what's the, what's the knee-jerk reaction within all humans? It's avenge, strike back, and he's saying, don't do it. Do good to them. And we, we hurt each other in this church, we do. And we don't live up to the expectations we set for one another. They don't to us. We don't to them. And, and we feel hurt by them, maybe by what they said or by ignoring us. 
And, and, and then we also we are able to drop a line or two about their life. Or maybe we say something a little bit, you know, giving 80% of a story just to kind of bring them down a level because they've hurt us. That's how we respond. And you say, don't do it. Do good to them. So if there are names right now in your mind, you, you want to move with goodness by the things you say, the things you do, but not just in the church. He says to everyone. At the end of 15, he says to everyone. In other words, even to those outside the church. And so many of you, particularly on social media, uh, people can say things that you feel are evil or hurtful to you. And what do we do? Boom, we fire one right back to them. Uh, social media is no place to hammer out differences. Whether you have differences of opinions on immigration, gun laws, uh, other political issues, or even politicians that you follow, that's not a place to engage in kind of name call. It's fine to discuss policy, to discuss issues at hand, uh, but, but where it starts to bring evil for evil, you've got to step back. I mean, that's not the colony of heaven. Now, when you hear everything I've just said to you, I've pointed out four things of how we can exercise mutual care for one another. We can, we can admonish, we can encourage, we can help, and we can do good. So do those things describe you in how you relate to one another? Do they describe you? In the last 90 days, who have you admonished or who have you, who have you encouraged or comforted or helped? Who have you done good to that did evil to you. Now, I, I get it. It's hard. It's messy here. Sometimes I'm confronted. Do, do I admonish this person or, or do I comfort and encourage them? Sometimes I don't know. And many times I've done the opposite of what they've needed. You know, the last thing you want to do is afflict the comforted. You know, you, you, you want to comfort them, but sometimes you get it twisted around. You don't have all the answers. You don't know what to say. You walk into a hospital room or you walk into a person's home that's struggling. You, you don't know what to say to them. This is where we just walk by faith. If God has destined us to obtain a salvation through him who died for us, he will surely give us what we need. It may not always feel like that, but we trust by faith that he will lead us. But I want you to think about this. Just imagine with me, if you were part of a place that actually did this. I mean, to all the criticism that the church gets, you know, by being a bunch of hypocrites, I mean, can you imagine being part of a community that actually admonished rightly and properly and encouraged those who were faint-hearted and helped those who were weak not look down on them and, and did good even though maybe they received evil? Wouldn't you love to be a place like that? I mean, just imagine it with me for a minute. This is what we need to pray for. I mean, I almost want to pray right now. God, can we be this way? I mean, we, we live in a world that is... Um, Aggressive, attacking, unforgiving, uh, quickly responding back to any sort of evil perceived. And here we are, a colony of heaven, admonishing lovingly, admiring, encouraging, serving, helping. I mean, we would be the light on the hill. Uh, we wouldn't need an evangelism campaign because people would just want to be part of it. So that's what he's saying here. As a colony of heaven waiting for the return, this is what we're to be about. Now listen, if you feel convicted here, this is the greatness of the gospel. Then repent and just say, God, would you forgive me and just help me do this? These are commands that I'm supposed to do. I remember what Augustine said. He said, command what you will and then give what you command. Give to me what I need to do what you've just told me to do. That's how we pray. Command what you will. Absolutely. God, you command anything you want. Just give me what you command. 
so that I can do it. Okay, the third thing we see here is this idea of rejoicing always. Now, if you thought the hill got steep with the last one, now it really begins to go kind of vertical because he's telling us to rejoice in all ways and all things. Look in 16 to 18. He says, Rejoice always, pray without cease, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, he doesn't give a lot of explanation here. He just says, rejoice always, give thanks, pray unceasingly. I mean, is Paul naive? Is he overstating his point? Now, Paul's definitely not naive. He understands the persecution and the threats that this church was facing. And yet he tells them anyways to rejoice in all things. So what's he doing here? Well, just remember, he's not saying be happy always. He's not saying that. He knows that happiness is tethered to circumstances, and circumstances change and they're out of our control. What he's saying is to rejoice, not to be happy. To rejoice is different. It's a choice we make to worship God in the midst of difficult things or good things. He's calling us to worship God even when our life is a dumpster fire. He's calling us to rejoice, to make the choice to say, God, I'm going to honor you and love you in the midst of these difficulties. I think that's what he means by give thanks in all circumstances. So when you get the call, whether it's cancer, job loss, wayward child, or, friends, if things go well, you get a promotion, you have a compliant child, you're doing really well, don't forget about God then. Give thanks in all circumstances. Christians can tend to be gloomy. And he's saying, rejoice in all things. This isn't an optimistic, Paul's just a pie-in-the-sky guy. He said the same thing in Philippians chapter 4. When he was in jail, soon to die, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I say rejoice. He says the same thing. This older Paul, mature Paul, suffering Paul. He's still, still calling us to rejoice. Charles Spurgeon, of course, a great preacher and England in the 19th century said, I am bound to mention among the curiosities of the churches that I have known many deeply spiritual Christian people who have been afraid to rejoice. Some take such a view of religion that it is to them a sacred duty to be gloomy. Turn this book over, that is the Bible, and see if there is any precept that the Lord has given you in which he said, groan in the Lord always. Again, I say groan. I mean, you may groan if you like, you have a Christian liberty for that, but at the same time, do believe that you have a larger liberty to rejoice. You know, so John Wesley was a Methodist minister in the 18th century. And 13 years before he was converted, uh, he had his own understanding of what Christianity is. And so he met this porter, this servant at the college. He went to Oxford, I believe, and he met this porter, And this porter was just a happy, grateful man. And so Wesley says this. um, He says, the porter had only one coat. He had eaten no food that day, and yet his heart was full of gratitude to God. So I asked him, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, no bed to lie upon? What else do you thank him for? I thank him, answered the porter, that he has given me my life and my being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. The only reason I bring this example up is it is doable. People do do that. We, we can rejoice when things are difficult. And you say, well, it seems easier said than done. And I agree it does. And so does Paul give us any inclination about how we ought to do it? Well, I think he does. Tucked in that verse, I think it's in verse 17. 
He says, pray unceasingly. To pray unceasingly, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that your eyes be on your knees, or your head's bowed, or you're just uttering words to God all the time. To pray unceasingly is simply this. It's to pray and not give up. So you're constantly bringing it before the Lord. But when I say pray, I, I don't mean just ask petition after petition after petition. I'm talking about a communion with God, that, that when you pray, you're not just bringing a list to him, but you're actually coming to him as if he is a father to you, that you're finding him and resting in him, that when you pray, you're considering the very nature of God, that he's sovereign, that he's powerful, that he's good, that he loves you, that if he in fact has given his son for you, what will he withhold? From? You're, most of you are parents. You know, God gives us this role of parenting to understand, listen, if your son is hungry, will you give him a stone? Jesus says, if, if, he is, uh, if he's hungry and he asks for an, an egg, will you give him a snake? He says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask him? So he's saying, just go to your own marriage, go to your own life and your parents. and Say, do you like to give good things to your kids? Yeah, I, I do then God does even more. And so when you go to God, you're remembering his character and his power. If God has destined for you to obtain a salvation, he loves you deeply and he'll give to you what you need. But when Paul says, rejoice always, you're not rejoicing for the circumstances. You're rejoicing in them because your father is going to work out every situation in your life to bring you to a place where you will say thank you to him at the end of your life. You'll thank him even for the hardships. I think that's what Paul's driving at. He's saying that circumstances don't really matter. At the end of the day, whether they're bad, whether they're good, God, if if he truly loves you, he's going to work them in, just like a, just like a sculptor uses a, a hammer and a chisel to fashion out what he wants in you so God will do it. And so you can thank him even in advance. That's what I'm calling that, This requires faith. It requires faith that God loves you and that he's able to do it. I, I'm calling you to faith. I'm not calling you necessarily right now to being saved as in, moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. For some of you, you may need that. For some of you, you've been outside on the periphery of the Christian faith, and you, you've never really come to that place where you say, yes, I believe that I need Christ to be saved and to be reconciled to God because my sins have separated. Maybe you've never come. You need to do that. You need to be born again to be part of his kingdom. But for those of you who have, then I would say to you, that I'm calling you to faith to believe that God is this good, he is this powerful, to do this kind of work, so that even now, before you see the end result, you can say thank you. Thank you for that. And, and then the last thing I would say to you, the last mark of this colony of heaven, is to be discerning about all that you learn. Now look with me at 19.22. He says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, Abstain from every form of evil. By the way, this passage could be like your prayer list. Just, just a little addition for you. You, know, you can look down these things and just they'd be good reminders for you. But what he's saying here in 19 to 22 is just be discerning. God's Spirit wants to change you. So as we kind of gather together in this colony of heaven waiting for him to return, it may be a year, it may be 10 years, it may be 100 years, I have no clue at all. Uh, but while we wait for him to come to us or we to go to him, 
that we're to be uh, looking for the Spirit to change us. I don't want you white-knuckling change because it won't last. You, know, as you, you can white-knuckle change, but you begin to get tired and your hands begin to loosen. Uh, we look to the Spirit for change. Why do I say that? Well, look, he says, don't quench the Spirit. Uh, to quench, that word means to, you know, to kind of extinguish a fire by pouring a bunch of water on it. Uh, don't quench the Spirit. The Spirit of God has been given to the people of God to change us. So, you know, the Spirit will prompt us maybe away from sin. Uh, the Spirit will prod us maybe to repent to our spouse when we have spoken sharply. The Spirit will convict us. Maybe you're hearing some things right now and you're like, hey, I got to do that. I got. That's the Spirit of God moving in you, leading you from glory to glory. He's saying don't quench the Spirit. If the Spirit is trying to fan change in your life into a flame, don't put it out. You know that feeling you have, that tug of war you have in your soul, where you feel like, I, I probably ought to do this, but I'm too lazy and I don't want to do it. And so we choose not to do it. You know, we feel that, that impression, if you will. I, I, I prefer not to say God told me, because well, unless he did, and if he did, I'd love to know about it. But, but if it's an impression, or if, it, if you feel being compelled to do something, uh, and you don't do it, then you know that guilt that kind of comes with you? Now, be careful. You can guilt yourself into death. Um, so, so there's got to be some discernment there, and that's what he's speaking about here. Uh, but there's a tug of war. Paul says, I, I don't do that which I want to do, and I do that which I don't want to do. Paul says the Spirit's willing. The flesh is weak. There's a tug of war. But when the Spirit of God prompts you, you know, to get up and serve, or to share the gospel with a neighbor, or maybe to sacrificially give to someone who has a unique need. And you kind of take a pass on it. I'll get it next time. You don't want to do that. That's what he's saying. Don't quench the promptings of the Spirit. Now, if you need help in understanding, is this the Spirit or is just me just being kind of over-scrupulous here? Well, that's where you ask another brother or sister and say, how do you understand this? Here's what I'm being prompted to do. Does this seem like a work of God's Spirit? But not just don't quench the spirit. He says, don't despise prophecies. What in the world is he talking about? It was some think that he's talking about don't despise. In other words, promote tongue speaking and, and prophetic words about the future. I, I don't know that he means that. I, I don't think he does. Uh, some people think that Paul is dealing with a problem in Thessalonica that was opposite to the problem in Corinth. You know, the problem in Corinth was they were overplaying spiritual gifts, and here Paul's trying to put a, the people were trying to put a lid on it. I, I doesn't say that, I don't know. Maybe some scholar knows something I, I don't. Well, I can tell you they do, that I don't know. Uh, but I think the safest way to look at this would simply be that any prophecy is, a, is an utterance uh, from the Word of God, prompted by the Spirit of God. I'm prophesying to you right now. I'm being prophetic in your life, telling you what the Scripture says you ought to do. So I'm prophesying to you. And so when you hear these things, you don't want to despise what I'm saying or anything that comes out of the pulpit when it comes from the Word of God. But not just the pulpit, but how, your encouragement to one another. The, remember how we just saw that in verse 14? When you admonish someone or you comfort someone or you help someone, you know, as you speak the wor word of God to one another, you know, we, we can despise that. It, let's say someone younger than you comes up and says, well, shouldn't we be doing this? And they, they reference the word of God. And you're like, 
you know, you look down on them because they're young. Or maybe they're not as mature in the faith. Or they don't know all the Bible verses you know. You know, or, or, or maybe another part of their life is a bit of a problem. But they talk to you about a part of your life that is a problem for you. And you, you write them off. You say, you know what, why don't you get your own life fixed first before you come talking to me about it. And th that's despising what the Spirit is trying to do to bring change. You know, the promise that we have in Corinthians is that you're going to be transformed from glory to glory through the power of the Spirit as you behold the Son. And, and so you don't want to despise that. Now, saying that you should be listening to what people are saying doesn't mean that you don't have a filter. You notice what he says there in the last verse, test everything. I mean, you should test everything. You don't just drink a glass of water is there and it's got all kinds of stuff floating in it. You don't just take it and push it back. I mean, you'll, you, you want to test what you hear. Now, he doesn't tell us how to do it. I mean, the Bereans in Acts 17, they compared it to the Scriptures. I would surely do that. I would maybe bring in counsel of other people. But even if it's a criticism, I, I, I want to test it, but still listen to it. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the pastor in New England in the 18th century, you know, even people that criticized him, he would always stop and hear what they had to say and say, okay, what truth is in there for me? How can I profit? How can I be better? Even by criticism of people that you may not respect, I'm at least going to listen to it. Because they may be, they may have the best angle at seeing me change, even though they don't even intend for me to change. So we need to test things. So let me ask you, as the people of God, uh, do you tend to quench the Spirit? When was the last time you felt impelled or you felt compelled to do something? Maybe you heard some scripture. And did you do it? And why didn't you do it? And were you served by doing it? Let me encourage you to ask God to kind of clean your soul and say, I want to sense the Spirit leading me to glory. Or, or when was the last time that you listened to the Word of God and, and you really said, I want to do what I just heard? You know, the Word of God doesn't just create a people, but the Word of God also reshapes and remolds a people. And every week you're getting reshaped. The world's giving you a word, and it's reshaping you. And you're hearing a word in here, and it's reshaping you. So to what degree do you despise the prophecies? I mean, ask God to have clarity of hearing so that you can hear it and live. A and then last, test everything. I mean, some of us, we listen to anybody and believe anything. You know, particularly much on the Internet. You know, you can... Google something on the internet and have eight bazillion hits within 38 nanoseconds. Just because it's information doesn't make it right. Or TV preachers, may I warn you over them? They have what we call an over-realized eschatology. That's a big fancy way of saying they're trying to get a lot of heaven in today. Be discerning about the voices that you hear. Do you know their lives? Do you know them? Do they work among you? Uh, just be discerning. Do they have much to say? Yes, I profited greatly from many of them. But we just want to be discerning too often. Too quickly do we hear something that accords with what we kind of think, and boom, it locks in our mind. And so he tells us to test everything. Hold on to what's good, definitely, but test everything and cast away uh, that which is not good. So here he's given us this kind of what are the walking, how do we wait for this day? You know, Paul in chapter 4, 
from 13 all the way to the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, 1 to 11. It's all been about the return of Christ. And now he goes right into our passage. This is how you wait. This is how you wait. You, you respect leadership and seek to uh, serve one another. And then you, you move with uh, joy, even in all circumstances. And then you, you act with discernment to what you hear that you might be changed. Let's just take a moment now and ask for grace that he would just move this into our soul and change us through it. And then I'll pray for us in a minute.